Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming Streamline Studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. The following program is produced with a vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am Burl Bear. That's Mark Boyer, fact checker and co-host. Got a great show for you today. Lisa Perlman, first presenting judge of the California State Bar Court, former California trial lawyer. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's a pleasure, Mike. For people listening who aren't, for some reason, familiar with the uh, the Lindbergh situation, can you give us a brief backstory on it first? Sure. Uh, Lindbergh was an uh, American royalty ever since he flew nonstop from New York to Paris, the first person to do that in 1927. Every week there were newsreels about him when he got married. There were newsreels about his marriage. His son's birth was front-page news. Um, and then on March 1, 1932, uh, the police announced that the child had been kidnapped mm. uh, from home uh, while five adults were on the premises, including Lindbergh. Um, and the story was that a ladder found in the yard, a sectional ladder, had been propped up uh, against the house under the nursery window on the second floor, and the child was... Uh, taken asleep from um, his crib, um, put into a burlap bag, and then the uh, kidnapper, who was at that time thought to be part of a gang, um, went out the window, dropped the child, and uh, he died from um, hitting the mud in the, uh, underneath the window uh, from skull fractures. Uh, this was not what was known right away as a story because originally they thought the child had just disappeared with the kidnappers. And there were 13 uh, ransom demands over a period of about a month, which were to no avail, except that Lindbergh uh, paid through a uh, go-between uh, $50,000 in um, ransom money that was recorded. Uh, in May of 1932, the child's body was found 10 weeks after he disappeared in woods less than five miles from the Lindbergh's home. And the largest investigation in U.S. history to date um, kept hitting dead ends until um, September of 1934 when uh, Bruno Richard Houtman was arrested in the Bronx for spending one of the um, $10 uh, gold certificates that was part of the ransom money. And what happened to Mr. Houtman? Mr. Houtman was um, uh, charged with extortion in New York and then uh, almost immediately transferred to New Jersey to face murder charges, kidnap murder, um, and it went to trial within uh, three months thereafter, a month-long trial with 90-plus state witnesses. He was convicted and um, sentenced to death and executed the following year. And I imagine All the while... Uh, uh, Professing his innocence, yes, that's what I was going to, going been to say. In the Bronx yeah. that night, um, bringing his wife home from work at 8 p.m., where she worked at a bakery. So, despite the fact he had an alibi, he was convicted anyway. Right. Now, my first question is: What brought you to revisit this case and investigate it and come up with this new stuff? It was roundabout. I was 
uh, researching the life of a, a criminal a defense lawyer named Faye Stender, who lived in my area and had become internationally famous for uh, representing uh, one of the Black Panthers, Huey Newton, uh, in a death penalty trial in 1968. And I wound up um, researching that and, and comparing it to other famous trials of the 20th century because it had been overlooked by lawyers and journalists who had their own lists of what were uh, the trials of the century. And I made a list of um, trials that appeared on everyone's um, list, because they weren't all the same, and one of them was the Lindbergh trial. And when I looked into the Lindbergh trial, it was the only one that was still a puzzle um, when I did the research, whether they convicted the right man or whether he was railroaded. Uh, and that was not something, as a former judge, I could just accept without doing research of my own. So I wound up doing original research. I wrote the uh, prize-winning book on the um, uh, based on the um, 1968 trial, comparing it to these others in 2012, and only a chapter on Lindbergh saying he should have been a suspect. There were five adults on the premises. He was one of them. Scotland Yard suggested that they investigate I want to cut to the chase on this. <laughs> when all is said and done of your research, is your opinion of what really happened? Well, my opinion is based in large part on friends. There was a medical uh, research lab, Squib Lab, which is now Bristol Myers Squib, uh, that they, the police asked for an analysis of the corpse and the surrounding materials and including the clothing that the two T-shirts that the corpse was found wearing, including the sleeping suit that had supposedly been returned by a gang of, of, of kidnappers to prove they had the child just a couple weeks after he disappeared, including the burlap bag, including Hartman's car. And there was no blood anywhere. Um, this was huge because the squib lab was asked to look for blood. Why? Because when the body was found, it was not, uh, it was just remains most, that were mostly skeletal. Yikes. Um, there was no blood at that site. There was no blood at the Lindbergh home that the police had already found, none at the crib. Um, and yet, most, almost all the blood was missing. Um, and the police already knew that uh, you have to look for where the blood is to see where the crime occurred. So mm -hmm. my, um, I did a lot more research. I uh, realized uh, during my research that Lindbergh and Dr. Alexi Carell were secretly doing um, vivisection experiments at the time his child disappeared. Um, and then I consulted with Dr. Peter Speth, who has done 2,000 death um, investigations as a pathologist. Uh, he was involved in the Golden State Killer case, uh, helping bring him to justice. And he concluded from the remaining documentary evidence and checking the records of the weather at the time uh, that they lost, uh, and this is part of it, lost to the state police said must have happened after the body was dumped on March 1 um, by the kidnapper. Uh, no, it was something that looked like the um, child had been etherized, and it looked like there had been surgical removal of organs. Wow. Now, my first question there is, how the heck was this concealed for such a long period of time? Good question. Um, the uh, Rockefeller Institute uh, of Medical Research, where 
uh, Carell um, uh, um, performed his vivisections, um, was also uh, deeply involved in the Tuskegee Institute uh, syphilis experiments that were kept secret for 40 years. Uh, None of the people who worked with Carell on his team wanted to reveal it because they knew what they were doing was illegal. Uh, Carell wasn't even a licensed um, doctor. He had been a doctor in 1905, but then he didn't renew his license thereafter. So at the time this took place, how much of this was known by the investigators? Well, the investigation was led by Lindbergh. Oh, jeez. And none uh, at the... uh, uh, Basically, um, with the um, consent of the governor and the head of the New Jersey State Police, they actually moved temporary headquarters to Lindbergh's garage. But I don't think they knew, um, ultimately, what was going on. I think some of them knew that, uh, that Lindbergh was involved. And yet, was it because he was such a hero, shall we say, that this was finessed? Absolutely. He was beyond reproach. I mean, to, to change him from being a suspect category that the that Scotland Yard recommended to heading the investigation and cutting off things that should have been investigated, uh, one uh, major clue to me uh, was the neighbor. There's a um, teenage neighbor named Ben Lupica um, who was driving home his family car from Princeton on the night of March 1, and he arrived in front of the Lindbergh estate um, at about 6 p.m., and it was getting dark, and there was a car that the, the driver was behaving oddly um, that he saw there. And being a teenager interested in cars, he noticed that it was a 1929 Dodge. It was either black or dark blue in, the, in uh, that pale light. And he saw that the driver was slim um, and had a city fellow's um, winter coat on because it's a rural area where that over the passenger seat was a um, sectional ladder. And when he started to drive by, the other fellow stopped and was just behaving oddly. Well, uh, Lupica went on and uh, thought maybe that's an overdressed window uh, you know, washer. But the next day he found out, because it was all over the news, that the kidnapping supposedly had happened that night. So he went to the police and he told them what he saw. And they started taking him around. Oh, they had local plates also, New Jersey plates, just like his own car. Um, and he also noticed that it had a spare mounted on the back. Uh, so he had a lot of details and had um, wooden spokes in the, we- uh, in the wheels. In any event, they said, let's take you around to visit a list we have of all people who own that kind of car in this county, registered in the county. And he st- they started halfway down the list, and then they stopped. And never um, finished. And Lupica had no idea why. And he told the FBI the same story. And um, nothing happened with that. Uh, right before Hauptman's trial, Lupica was offered money like some other residents were to implicate Hauptman instead with a, a, a different car. Uh, he refused and testified for the defense. Um, fast forward to when he was in his 80s, he was approached by two investigators, um, uh, Greg Alguin and Steve Monier, and um, when he gave his story to them, they realized that the person that he likely saw at the foot of the Lindbergh driveway was Lindbergh himself. Ooh. And so they wrote, um, um, calling it what had happened was that Lindbergh had um, performed one of his many uh, mean-spirited practical jokes 
uh, and it went awry, and that's how the child died, and then he covered it up. Lindbergh was known by the whole family and others outside the family to have hidden his son in a closet when he was eight months old and making everyone think that he'd been kidnapped until they found him. Um, he had done a lot of, of, of mean-spirited um, pranks uh, throughout the years on family, on co-people. individual to do jokes. Yes, that's what I found. It was interesting when I researched the biographies of Lindbergh. Um, each one would mention two or three of the which almost killed a man. Uh, who was his roommate when they were um, flying, uh, I think, doing a race. Yeah, uh, um, he was put in charge of the airmail service. Yeah, so they were doing. They were in that, and um, his friend shared a room with them, and Lindbergh got annoyed that he never refilled the water pitcher that they had. So he emptied it and filled it with kerosene. Uh, the fellow gulped down um, a fair amount before he realized that it wasn't water and wound up in the hospital. Wow. Uh, Lindbergh so there like were a number of instances sick. like that, and uh, that's what that book wrote. But the problem with their book was that they assumed it was a prank gone awry, whereas when I read their book, it seemed to me that the details were uh, something that had to be pre-planned. Yeah, this gets stranger and stranger by the minute. Uh, I mean, I, growing up, I always... Uh, you know, there were even... TV shows and uh, TV movies about uh, Halbman and uh, convicting him and, you know, just being a regular American here and this stuff, I assumed that was the true story. Me too. I grew up thinking that myself. I came at this with an open mind, but um, I, I was immediately appalled by the nature of the trial, being a lawyer and a judge. I could not believe how it was handled. And the American Bar Association in 1937 condemned the way the press um, approached this case. They, they had him as public enemy number one before the trial started. Yeah, it sounds like the Nancy Grace syndrome. <laughs> That's Mark Boyer, our uh, fact checker and co-host. I mean, this sounds like this helping was railroaded, but what I, what I want to know is, is what the hell really happened to this kid and why? Were you able to figure that out? Yes, um... With the help of uh, my chief researcher, my daughter, Jamie Benvenuti, uh, and the fact that we're now able to access archives um, on the Internet, um, we gathered a lot of information. I went to the Rockefeller Institute itself. She and I went there. I went to UCLA collection of, of a couple hundred pages of research done by Governor Hoffman's um, chief uh, investigator, uh, who Governor Hoffman came uh, into office after the trial and tried to get a Houtman um, uh, actually exonerated. But what he did at first was just say, we need to see if there are other people involved with him. Uh, but he met a Houtman uh, in his death cell, and he believed him. Um, and anyway, that's um, when I saw what the trial was like, it was atrocious. His chief lawyer was hired by Hearst. Uh, Hearst had about a quarter of the nation's newspapers at the time, and he considered, the lawyer um, considered his chief duty to be reporting every day exclusive stories to um, Hearst. Uh, he only visited, this is the part that was appalling, he only visited Hauptmann in prison uh, for 40 minutes total um, before trial, uh, for uh, approximately 10-minute visits because they were all recorded by the police. 
Well, it seems he didn't like... believe in his innocence. He actually told an FBI agent uh, that he hoped he got executed. And that was Houtman's chief lawyer. Sounds like uh, a lot of this was to sell newspapers and... Uh... Absolutely. It, it, it was a transformation of, of news. There's a book written about that. Um, they actually planted microphones uh, in the courtroom that the judge didn't know about by the jury box um, to broadcast it. Uh, so there's a lot of, you can go and find a lot of old footage of the actual trial. Uh, there were so many people crowding into that uh, courthouse, and some of them are movie stars and uh, you name it. They were um, issued basically fake subpoenas, uh, subpoenas by the both sides that they didn't intend to use um, so they could get in. Um, but there were tickets issued to the trial, and there were thousands of people outside, and there were souvenirs being sold oh of the kidnap God. ladder and other items. Uh, it was a circus. I mean, this is horrifying. I mean, uh, anyone with a, with a, would be appalled by this. Well, I was. <laughs> Interesting that there was a concerted effort to keep the death of the child near the Lindbergh home because there's a possibility if you had been killed in another county, he may have had an entirely different outcome in trial. Right. The, where the body was found um, was... Um, actually in the next county where Trenton was, and it would have been a different jury pool. Um, the rural county where they did try it was because they insisted, the, the prosecutor, the state, and, and Lindbergh, that the child died um, at, at his house, which happened to be in Hunterdon County. Um, and, and so there was a, it was in the wrong venue if the child actually died in the woods where they found the body, but it didn't even, um, there's no blood there either. There was no evidence that he died there either. Uh, in fact, the medical examiner at Borg, um, he disappeared. And the reason he did that, we think now, and we think what happened, was that Lindbergh spirited his... First of all, I think Lindbergh had his wife um, and nanny drug his son, uh, unfortunately, so he was out cold. And the reason we think that is that Lindbergh called his wife uh, earlier in the day, instructed her on some medicine that was still in the room when the police came, and it was never checked. But the nanny said to Ann that night, he went to sleep unusually quickly. Um, so there's that aspect of it. But I think Lindbergh was able to get him out of the house when no one else was on that side of the house um, from the staff uh, because he didn't permit them to be. Um, once they had done their duties, they were um, above the garage in an apartment, and his wife was taking a bath. So he was able to spirit him out to people he hired, that's what I think, and that the child was taken to the Princeton Rockefeller Institute, formed on him. Um, Dr. Speth has written about that. Um, and the key one is the um, removal of a gun, which is actually pictured in Carell and Lindbergh's 1938 book without identifying the subject or the date. But we figured out from other um, materials that it most likely had to be Lindbergh's son. Uh, Carell wrote a confidential memo to the Rockefeller uh, Institute board about this uh, breakthrough experiment he did um, from March to April 1932. Um, and he gave the chief credit to that operation to Lindbergh. Wow. 
this just becomes more and more bizarre and it's shocking almost to the point of turning one numb. <laughs> Absolutely. The book they wrote in 1938, co-authored, uh, Lurg only did the chapter, I think, on the mechanics of his pump because uh, Carell became dependent on the Lindbergh pump uh, to the organs and tissue uh, oxygenated so that it could be transplanted. Now, um, and, and Lindbergh was the only one who knew how to fix any problems. So he generally was there when those operations occurred, and there were many, uh, some on cats and dogs and some on humans. And the book says, has a chapter that includes recommendation that other re- researchers join in uh, this forbidden field. Now, um, I've, I've got to ask. Now, a family thought perhaps at first this was another one of his practical jokes but if there's vivisection going on here there's more strange and bizarre going on with Lindbergh's child why in the world would Lindbergh drug his child and have his child taken for bizarre medical experiments because they were doing there's no question that they were doing um, human experiments, but Corell bragged about it to the New York Times later in 38 that he'd done like a thousand um, of, on human experiments, but the Lindbergh pump could only hold small organs, very tiny organs. So basically they were um, um, babies, and they would mostly get them state institutions and orphanages and the like. There was a letter that was found, or that, um, yeah, was found, I guess, <coughs> by David. Friedman, who wrote a book about the bizarre medical experiments that, that Lindbergh and Carell were doing because they were trying to uh, jumpstart organ transplants. Um, and that, that was their goal. And they were doing experiments on humans. And so this letter that uh, Friedman found um, was from the head of um, institution um, in uh, New Jersey, the, the governing board over state institutions like uh, they had epilepsy asylums and they had other uh, institutions where they were housing um, children who were handicapped and whatever. This fellow was offering them feeble-minded prospects. He was, what was he offering them? Feeble-minded prospects. Oh, wonderful. Um, And... In any event, but it wasn't unique. There were other experiments going on that behind closed doors in the 30s by um, not just Rockefeller, but other institutions. We've got the Tuskegee one was backed by the government. Yes, I recall that one. That's where they were giving people syphilis. Right, but there were others where there, there was a lawsuit filed against them for some other experiments. There was uh, the Puerto Rican experiments that they did on cancer where there's the, the, a different doctor at Rockefeller. There were an awful lot of experiments going on that put people at risk without their knowledge. Now, why would Lindbergh want to have these experiments uh, or transplants or whatever done on his child? Well, the main reason that he wanted to do this Um, is that his sister-in-law, Elizabeth Morrow, was uh, someone he had actually fallen in love with before he married Anne. He met both of them in Mexico um, right after his flight. Their father was the ambassador to Mexico at the time. 
And Elizabeth had a defective heart valve. And so he searched out Dr. Carell when his son was born because he noticed that the um, doctor um, brought with him a mechanical device to help with breathing. Uh, And so he asked about, well, is there something like that you can do for the heart? And the doctor said no, um, but the person to ask who's experimenting in that direction is Dr. Alexi Carell, and I will introduce you. So that was why he went, and I think that what they decided was that it was possible to do an, uh, an experimental surgery on a human like Carell had done on a dog many years earlier, and that was to take a segment of carotid artery from the neck and transplant it to the, um, outside the heart to bypass the valve so that blood could flow throughout the body while a valve was being repaired. And so before that, there wasn't enough time for a surgeon to um, actually repair a heart valve um, before the uh, patient died. Yeah, the, at, that, at that point in time, right. the heart had to stay beating. So you're operating on a moving object. Right. So they couldn't, but they could not keep it beating without circulating the blood, and they didn't have a way to do that until Carell came up with this idea that you could take a carotid artery segment um, and transplant it, and it would uh, by the heart as a temporary bypass. And so he wanted to do the same thing for a human. That's my theory. And so. Uh, this would be an operation that might be um, made available uh, to save Elizabeth Morrow's life, and she was not projected to have um, much longer to live. Um, I, I think what happened, she did come to Rockefeller to be evaluated uh, for her heart. It, it, there's no records that we have, but we have a family um, diary that mentions that. Um, but I think she must have been too weak for them to actually undertake such an operation. So that didn't happen but Lindbergh became very interested in the possibility of it happening and uh, using his son, who he disliked, actually, because he was uh, megalocephalic, uh, he had a rickety condition, um, and Lindbergh viewed him as a weakling and not, um, not an example of the 12 superior children he intended to have with Anne, consistent with him being the um, the um, poster man, I guess, of Nordic superiority as far as um, the eugenicists were concerned. Oh, boy. He didn't give an award for that. So he was not keen on his son, and he knew that his son was a blood relative of um, his sister-in-law, and they also knew, Carell knew, and had told when he, uh, various uh, doctors when he won the Nobel Prize in 1912 that you have to be caref- more careful with human experiments than with um, animals because uh, of the rejection of, um, you know, right. foreign mm-hmm. tissue um, was much higher. So, so it was much more likely that it would succeed if it was a blood relative. So let me see if I get this straight. Lindbergh sounds to me like he's nuts and a Nazi. It's what, my, my first take on this. He's got a sickly child, a rickety child, is hydrocephalic, has various health problems, and he wants children from his bloodline to be perfect examples of Nordic superiority, and so he's going to have some uh, 
operations done on his child to fix him? Was that not to fix his child to to take to kill him on the but you but save his carotid artery um, and the thyroid? I think that we believe was, uh, is pictured um, in the in their book. Um, would be saved for other uh, purposes. Wow. And so were other things. I mean, when the body was found, it was missing both hands and uh, one arm up to the elbow. It was missing the left leg below the knee. I think they, and it was missing most organs, including a sex organ. And Carell bragged that he used sex organs. He used all kinds of organs in his experiments. This sounds like, a, you know, the Dr. Mengele School of Medicine here. Absolutely. In fact, the, the Nazis um, were thrilled with what Carell was was doing. Um, after World War II, when Hitler's doctor was prosecuted at Nuremberg, he defended himself by saying, we were only doing what Dr. Carell recommended. This gets more horrifying by the moment. Yeah. Uh, for a variety of reasons, not only the the medical stuff, but the theories behind it and the motives behind it just boggled my mind. Uh, well, Dr. Carell wrote a best-selling, uh, internationally best-selling book in 1935, Man the Unknown, uh, which included um, uh, his view that you should create a master race by eliminating inferior people, uh, weakling babies, um, people with, uh, with mental problems, um, uh, hardcore criminals, and and he suggested that the way you do that is by is to quote euthanize and quote them in small gas chambers, you know, and Hitler made that um, compulsory reading. Yeah, and acted on it. Yeah, this is just horrifying. I mean, I'm just I am dumbstruck by how horrific. Well, I was too. In fact, I took a break from that um, research for about five years because I could not stand what I was finding. It just is shocking. And Lindbergh was considered such a wonderful guy by the general yeah. populace. There's some sort of hero. well, you know, that's because they sold the myth. They did sell myth. They sold a myth from the day Lindbergh flew across the ocean. Um, they they mythologized his family. They mythologized his background with a, a ghost writer from the New York Times. Um, Lindbergh thought they um, made him look too good, so he re- rewrote parts of it to put in anecdotes that were racist and uh, again the, and the pranks he played and stuff. He stuck some of that back in there. So he wouldn't be too perfect. So he'd be more believable. Well, it was more comfortable to him because that's who he was. Uh, I'm almost speechless, Mark, when you ask the lady a question here. I'm still reeling from the horrifying nature of this story. Um, There's so much that was wrong with the investigation and the prosecution. What are some of the most egregious uh, things that occurred? Well, uh, before I I go into that, I think that um, there are a number. I think that the reason the body was found 10 weeks later... Uh, then the child disappeared was to hide the fact that there was surgery because the body would be mostly decomposed. And when they started to see that there were still a few weird things about it, Lindbergh immediately had him cremated before they could do a full autopsy. So um, one of the things that was, um, uh, well, horrendous about the trial was that the um, state prosecutor, the attorney general, um, theory of why uh, uh, Hauptman should die 
was felony murder. Uh, kidnapping was not a felony at the time, so the felony was supposed to be burglary um, by coming in the window. And the burglary that was of a, the sleeping suit that the kid was wearing. Well, in fact, the sleeping suit was returned um, a few weeks later but to the go-between as proof that they had the child, uh, supposedly a gang. Um, so it didn't even fit the theory that the prosecutor had because uh, in order to base it on the sleeping suit, it would have had to have been intended to be kept permanently. And the judge never made that instruction, and the Court of Appeal said, we don't care. Um, so th that, it shouldn't have been felony murder um, based on what they were charging. But worse than that, uh, they had zero evidence at the trial that the child actually died on March 1. The closest they came was, have, was uh, Dr. Mitchell, the medical examiner, said that uh, he, on the stand that the child died instantly from the skull fractures. Okay, but he didn't say the skull fractures happened um, from a fall uh, on March 1 from the nursery at the Lindbergh Estate, which was the basis for um, uh, prosecuting Houtman. And in fact, the doctor had, had not only put in his final medical report that he believed death occurred at, a, at least two days after that and up to uh, three weeks after that, um, but he had so testified in a prior trial where Lindbergh was in attendance. Um, he said it couldn't be. You couldn't fall into mud and cause those fractures. And there's another part of that. There was one picture taken at the morgue, and that picture was unofficial because Lindbergh forbade any pictures. Um, but it was a freelance photographer who sneaked in, took this photo, which is still available because uh, he sold it on the black market. That photo, my daughter looked at very carefully and, and uh, enlarged, and it appears to have on the right jaw an infection, um, a, a fairly good-sized infection. Well, what she did is she looked up um, uh, infections from carotid artery operations and found one that looks very similar of a modern patient. Um, oh so uh, Dr. Speth said um, that to, if that is an infection, it's the type of infection that would have to have occurred before death. And so even though Dr. Mitchell never explained why he was insistent that, it, that, that the death occurred at least two days later, um, Dr. Speth said, well, that could very well be because that is an infection, and he knew, Dr. Mitchell, that you could not um, develop such an infection um, after death. You could only develop it beforehand when blood was circulating. Good. So that's another. So they had zero evidence that, that the uh, death occurred that night. Um, they uh, did not have um, the, uh, you know, the full autopsy to, to tell them one way or the other. Um, and all of the evidence, the circumstantial evidence trying to implicate Hauptman was that he was there that night of March 1, and he's the builder of the ladder. Um, they had a wood expert, federal wood expert, come in and make a visual comparison of one rail of the ladder to uh, a floorboard in the attic above Hauptman's apartment in the Bronx and conclude they came from the same pine tree. Um, that is no longer considered reliable. Um, you have to have wood DNA testing done to determine that two different pieces of wood are uh, from the same source. But it was also true at the time 
that the uh, officer who said he he found that uh, there was a hole in the attic of eight feet long from which um, he determined that the rail must have been cut, um, was there... He testified on the stand to something that seems like obvious perjury, and that is that he said he was the first one up in that attic um, more than about a week, I guess, after Houtman was arrested and saw a pile of sawdust and saw this missing eight-foot section of floorboard. And the truth is, according to uh, research done by um, historian Lloyd Gardner, that the New Jersey State Police had reports nine reports from other officers and FBI agents who went up into the Houtman apartment um, right after he was arrested that same day and found 30, there were 37 of them total. Um, none of them saw anything that seemed to pertain to the case. So this fellow Bornman said he was the first one up there. Not true. Wow. And uh, and what Houtman thought was that they had manufactured evidence. They took the police took over his apartment immediately, and he thought they manufactured evidence to try to frame him. How did they? And, how did they pick this fellow? And how did he wind up with that gold certificate? Well, the way he wound up, it's interesting. Two weeks before Houtman was arrested, the uh, New, uh, New York State Police had been alerted to a uh, someone spending a $10 gold certificate at a fruit and, and uh, vegetable stand in, in New York. And uh, they immediately um, interviewed the, um, the fellow who was running the stand. And this fellow was a Salvatore Levitino, um, was very uh, observant. And he said this fellow had a trim and athletic build. He was tall and thin, about 5'11". He weighed about 155 or 160 pounds. Uh, he spoke perfect English. Um, and he seemed to have, he had fine white hands that didn't appear to be those of a laborer. In any event, the police wrote that up and put out a bulletin because most of the description excuse me, matched the one that uh, Lindbergh's go-between uh, described the fellow he met with in a cemetery to give the ransom money in April of 32. Yeah, this, this, um, so the so-called Cemetery the John. Guy. must be Cemetery um, John. Well, two weeks later, they changed their mind entirely because um, Hauptmann, who was a, was a stocky German carpenter, medium build, about 180 pounds, uh, had a workman's hands and a heavy German accent, had just bought gas with a different ten dollar ransom bill, and uh, they uh, the uh, attendant took down his uh, license number. The police invaded his home and found not only that he had that ten dollar ransom bill, but he had um, about fourteen thousand dollars of the ransom money in his uh, garage. What he said was, and they beat him up, um, and he still said the same thing that. He was given a shoebox tied with a string by a friend of his um, named Isidore Fish back in December of 33 when Fish was headed back to Germany to visit family. And he he uh, was told by Fish that it, that it uh, contained important papers uh, that he wanted kept for him when he returned. So Houtman said, I put it on the top shelf of my kitchen uh, closet and I forgot about it. A month later, he found out that Fish, who was consumptive, died in Germany. 
Um, and then he still didn't think about the box until it was summertime, August. It was a big rainstorm, and it was and it was leaking into the kitchen, the um, the rain. And so he pulled everything out. He found this box. He opened it. He saw all this money, and he didn't know where it came from. Uh, he dried it out and hid it in his garage because in May of '33, a year plus earlier, FDR had made uh, gold certificates illegal. Uh, because he was taking um, America off the gold standard uh, to greenbacks. And so he knew it wasn't legal currency. He didn't know where it came from. Fish owed him some money. So he kept it in the garage, and he wound up buying his wife a pair of shoes in August of uh, 34, and then spending uh, 10 bucks uh, for nine, or using 10 bucks to buy 99 cents worth of gas. And that's how he got caught. And the police and the public said, that's a fish story. Indeed. Where did this money come from? The money came from the ransom because the IRS, over Lindbergh's objections, had made him record all the numbers of the bills he was using to supposedly get his live son back safely in April of 32. Lindbergh refused to allow either the New Jersey police or the uh, uh, New York police to um, uh, have surveillance of the meeting between his go-between and this uh, representative of a gang, as they said at the time, um, Cemetery John. And didn't uh, didn't Lindbergh testify that he recognized Houtman's voice from one yes, of those meetings? Yes, he did, and that was uh, that's also very likely perjury. Why? Uh, because Lindbergh and his go-between John Condon, when Houtman was first arrested in the Bronx for extortion, um, said they could not identify him as Cemetery John. Uh, a few weeks later. Houtman's in New Jersey, Lindbergh changes his mind and said, from 200 feet away in a parked car, I heard him say, uh, yell, hey, doctor, to Condon, um, and I recognize that voice now, two and a half years later, as uh, Houtman. Uh, well, a major problem with that is that uh, the second um, lawyer on uh, Houtman's team actually believed in his innocence, and he went and um, replicated that distance uh, with an assistant, and there's no way that you could um, you could recognize the voice. You had to actually yell to be heard that distance, and it and makes your voice different. They checked uh, Fisher, this lawyer, Lloyd Fisher. He checked with experts, and they said you couldn't have done that a month later. Um, it just it, it's not you couldn't do it from two words from a stranger um, at that that much later. It was. But it was what the um, jury found convincing the very first day of the trial. If Lindbergh says that, this is the guy. Well, sure, they're not going to doubt Lindbergh. He's a hero. Right. They would not. In fact, he was sitting at the prosecution table, which is another thing that the defense objected to and the judge allowed. Um, he uh, First day, apparently, he had a gun in his, uh, 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 under his jacket, and you could see it. And the message to one reporter was, Oh, he's telling the jury, you know, if you don't do your um, job, I will. Oh, boy. It gets worse by the minute. Yeah, there was a lot wrong with that trial. Um, The other thing was there were handwriting experts that the state hired. They put on 90 um, witnesses, and eight of them were these handwriting experts. Well, the first two were father and son Osbournes, who were well-known and respected, and they were called in by the police early on. And New Jersey State Police, and they said, no, it doesn't match, okay? 
Mm-hmm. This is, you don't have. This isn't right. So then they, but the police said, wait a minute. We we found fourteen thousand dollars hidden in his garage, and they said, oh, now it does match. Oh, 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 oh yeah, sure. And, and the other thing, well, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially they changed their minds, uh, and there was an FBI agent pr- um, present, and he wrote it up in his report to the FBI. He thought it was appalling. Uh, the other thing I want to tell you about is uh, Dr. Hudson, who testified for the defense. Dr. Erastus Hudson was originally um, asked by the New Jersey State Police in March of 1932 to do fingerprint um, uh, work on the latter. And the reason he was asked is because he'd made an avocation since he was in the Army of um, not analyzing fingerprints so much, but as revealing them. He had a method for revealing latent prints using silver nitrate that was common in Europe but not in the United States. Well, he found about 500 prints on the outside of the ladder because the police had allowed themselves and investigators and reporters to touch it, um, uh, anybody who wanted to, um, before he arrived on March 13, which is 11 or 12 days after. So, but what he did then was take apart the ladder, and he found a print on an inside joint that he believed could only have been made by the builder. It was underneath a nail, I think. Um, in any event, he showed that to the New Jersey police who were supposed to then do the analysis, and he got out of the picture. Um, two and a half years later, when they arrested Houtman, he, called, he, he recontacted the police and said, have you checked his prints against the one I found on the inside joint? And uh, the um, police he talked to said, they don't match. And he said, you have the wrong man. And then they erased all prints on the letter before trial. Jeez. So he wound up testifying for the defense, but he didn't have anything to point to. Uh, There was a different issue that he wound up addressing, which is whether there were uh, four um, uh, nail holes in the ladder that were on the surface that were not um, functional that might have meant that it had previously been part of floorboard. He said they weren't there when I was, um, when I looked at it. Uh, It was only one. And he thought it was uh, that one represented a crossbar that the ladder was made from a crate. And there's other evidence that Lindbergh was saying that it was made from a crate back then and other evidence to support that it was made from a crate. It had nothing to do with attic floorboards. And uh, Houtman was a carpenter. Wasn't he Har- offended Houtman by... Houtman was an excellent carpenter. Yes, he, he made the garage the that the police tore apart. He made furniture for his son. They wouldn't let him bring in an example to show... Um, in court, and he was really as upset about the fact that he was um, that they that they were attributing to him building this really shoddy ladder uh, that could not hold weight more than 125 pounds when the child itself weighed 27 to 30, and there would have been close to 200 pounds if he was the perpetrator. It would have cracked. Um, but in any, it also had rungs that were 21 inches apart, which is not standard. 12 inches is standard. And as a result, it, it, it appeared to the state wood expert who was there in March of 32 that it was built for a very tall man, uh, like Lindbergh, six foot two. Um, so, um, but Houtman in court was visibly upset when they said that he made this ladder. He said, if I was going to make a ladder, it wouldn't look like that. Right. Now, is there any chance, because of this book and the other research that's been done, or your research, that he could be posthumously pardoned? 
That's our aim. That's our aim. Right now, the New Jersey State Police and the Attorney General are resisting allowing the, the evidence that they preserved because they kept it in the New Jersey State Police Museum along with the electric chair as exhibits to attract people to, um, you know, see. Um, they have the um, ladder preserved, and they have um, a, a piece of supposedly matching floorboard that was um, made into an exhibit at, at trial. Um, they have other um, evidence, too. They have, uh, ran they have uh, the ransom notes and envelopes. They got rid of some evidence, some of it that was uh, related to the child, like the T-shirts and um, the uh, sleeping suit. Um, when uh, DNA checking started to be common, they were asked to make the, uh, them available for that, and instead the police returned it to the Lindbergh family, all of those things. Wow. Um, so... Fairly They're no longer available, but there is evidence available. There's a current pending lawsuit by someone else in New Jersey on appeal now because they lost at trial, trying to force the New Jersey State Police to allow that testing. It's minimal, um, you know, damage to the items, but in fact, the New Jersey Police never kept those items um, pristine. They gave little pieces of it to their expert. They kept it for two months in the Lindbergh basement. Um, they raced. They they acknowledged erasing all the prints on it. Um, so they really don't have a good argument for why they shouldn't allow that, but they are resisting. So I'm, I want to I want you to take uh, your investigative hat off, put your your robes on as a, as a, a jurist. You know nothing of the case, but you have been asked to look at the evidence and decide if there is reasonable doubt to proceed with the posthumous pardoning. So you're now a judge. Is there enough evidence to, to proceed? Absolutely. In fact, there was a judge in California who was asked to preside over a mock trial in 1986 in San Francisco for which Anna Houtman was brought out and Hans Kloppenberg, who is uh, their best friend, who had been a witness that, that he couldn't, Houtman could not have been Cemetery John because he was at his own apartment with friends, including Kloppenberg, that night because it was the first Saturday of the month and they always got together to play music and eat um, at, at the Houtman's home on the first Saturday. So anyway, he testified to that. She testified that he was picking her up at work. The judge believed he was innocent and, and wrote, uh, wrote that up and sent it to the New Jersey Attorney General at the time and the Attorney General did nothing. Amazing. Well, there you go. Well, the book is called Suspect Number One, The Man Who Got Away, Lindbergh Kidnapping. Lisa Perlman, thank you so much for being our guest today and I'm uh, drop-jawed by this story. But thank you so much for being our guest. Well, thank you. Take care. You're you welcome. too. Thank you. Wow. Hey, what a, that's insane. Amazing. Hey, Pearl. Yeah. Besides crappy trials, what's next? <laughs> Magic Bad Allen and the Demons of Decadence, live from the Light of Lounge on OutlawRadioLive.com.